Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Last time we read chapters 29 and 30 that effectively saw David sent home by the Philistines. At the time, we noted that this represented Shaul's last hope extinguished. In all probability, had David entered battle, he would have fought against his patrons, the Philistines, and rescued Shaul from a certain defeat. But instead, divine providence decreed that David not participate. The Philistines sent him home, and as a result, Shaul was left to face his enemy alone. David returned to Tziklag, but of course it had been sacked and burned, overrun by the Amalekites. The women and children had been taken captives. David put his trust in God and managed to regroup, chase down the Amalekites, and defeat them soundly. We note, of course, that till David returned to Tziklag, three days had elapsed. In all probability, the battle, the final battle of Shaul, had already transpired or was transpiring at that very time. In effect, even as David was defeating the Amalekites, Shaul was being defeated by the Philistines. Which brings us to the final chapter of Shemuel Aleph of the first book of Samuel. Remember I mentioned at the very beginning that the book of Samuel is conveniently divided into two volumes, Samuel 1 and Samuel 2. From the point of view of Jewish tradition, it is an artificial division. There is no such division in the original version, but of course it is convenient because the first book of Samuel essentially is the story of Shaul's kingship, while the second book of Samuel is the story of David's. Therefore, with the reading of chapter 31, David's kingship is about to begin, and Shaul's kingship comes to its bitter end. Chapter 31 reports that the Philistines battled against Israel and the Israelites were routed. They retreated, and many fighters fell on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa is a prominent landmark on the edge of the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Jezreel between the area of the Kinneret and Haifa, more or less, the present-day borders of the State of Israel. The Jezreel Valley is a natural place for crossing through the land if you are going from the north to the south, from the south to the north, from Egypt up to Syria, Asia Minor, eastwards to Mesopotamia, or in the other direction, the Valley of Yisrael, Amic Yisrael, is the most important highway that connects these ancient trade routes. Whoever controls that valley effectively will control the traffic in the region. 
to this day, the Valley of Israel still has incredible importance, but for migratory birds. Migratory birds making their way from Africa to Asia or from Asia to Africa all pass through the land of Israel and especially through the area called the Jezreel Valley, Emek Israel, the Chula Valley, the area of the Kinneret, that is where those birds will pass to this day. Many battles in the Tanakh take place in Emek Israel for precisely this reason. And of course, additionally, because it, it, it is an extremely fertile valley and the largest valley in ancient Israel. So that is where the battle takes place. Shaul and his sons are pinned down by the Philistines. Yonatan, Avinadav, and Malkishua, the sons of Shaul, die in battle. And now the Philistines are closing in. Their long-range archers have located the king, and Shaul was very afraid of them. Shaul turns to his armor-bearer. And he asks him to draw his sword and, and run him through, lest the uncircumcised Philistines capture him and stab him and make sport of him and torture him and mutilate him. But his armor bearer refuses, because he was sorely afraid. So Shaul takes his own sword and he falls upon it. The text reports in verse number five that his armor bearer saw that Shaul was dead and he also fell on his own sword and died with him such that Shaul and his three sons and his armor bearer and his men, all of them died on that day together. The king of Israel is dead. The Israelites flee those that inhabit the area of Emek Israel leave their homes. The Philistines take over the area and effectively divide the Israelite settlement in two, the area south of Israel, the area north of Israel. Now the Philistines are firmly in control of that piece of territory that could join them. The text reports on the next day, the Philistines arrived to strip the corpses. Remember that in ancient times, battles ended when it became dark. Nobody fought at night. And so the battle ends, Israelites defeated, Shaul and his sons dead, but the bodies still are strewn on the battlefield. And it won't be until the next day that the Philistines arrive in order to strip them of their armor or any valuables. And it's at that point that they find Shaul's body and the bodies of his sons. Shaul's head is cut off in an image grotesquely reminiscent, but completely inverted of David cutting off the head of Goliath back in chapter 17, his storied defeat of the Philistines, now matched by Shaul's defeat at the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines cut off his head and they strip him of his armor and they send the news far and wide in the land of the Philistines that Shaul has been defeated. His armor is kept 
in the temple of Ashtarot, and Shaul's headless body is impaled on the wall of Beit She'an. In the book of Chronicles, we will find out that his head was also taken to a Philistine temple. And of course, the horrific imagery only drives home how tragic the event is. The chapter concludes with a report. The people of Yavesh Gilad. Yavesh Gilad is actually located on the eastern side of the Arden, roughly parallel in terms of the latitude to Beit She'an, but there is a bit of a distance to get from Yavesh Gilad to Beit She'an. The people of Yavesh Gilad had heard what the Philistines did to Shaul, and the valiant among them rose up, and all night they traveled, and they snatched the body of Shaul and the bodies of his sons from the walls of Beit She'an where the Philistines had strung them up to humiliate them. The Israelite men of Yavesh Gilad now rescue those bodies, and they take them down, they bring them to, your, to their town of Yavesh, and there they are burned, and the bones are buried. Rabbi David Kimchi points out, of course, burning bodies is absolutely not something that is part of our burial tradition. Quite the contrary. He speculates that in this particular case, the bodies had been so disfigured by being displayed, impaled on the wall of Beit She'an, covered with who knows what over the days of that grotesque display, that there was a need to actually burn the flesh, and so only the bones were buried. Rashi has an alternative reading that the burning here was not the flesh of Shaul's body, but rather some sort of a ritual burning, not of the bodies, but of other items as a sign of mourning. In any case, the final three words of the account, Vayatsumu Shivat Yamim, and they fasted, that is, the people of Yavesh Gilad fasted for seven days. And with that, the account of Shaul's kingdom comes to an end. This is an opportunity to reflect upon Shaul and his sorry demise. We note, of course, even as the moment is utterly tragic, there is something incredibly noble about Shaul in this particular scene. Shaul, in spite of the fact that he knows he will be defeated, in spite of the fact that he knows he will die, makes no attempt to flee from his fate. Quite the contrary, he embraces it. He will march into battle. He will rally his troops. He will do his best to defeat the enemy, but to no avail. And when the moment comes that the enemy closes in, he will deny them the pleasure of humiliating him further by taking his own life. It is, as it were, a noble suicide, another departure from Jewish tradition, but one that actually enters the annals of the halakha. 
if there are Jewish fighting men that know they will be captured and tortured, this is really the only time that Jewish law sanctions the taking of one's own life. And that's what Shaul does in the process becoming, as it were, the exemplar, the paradigm of this noble act. So Shaul is defeated. Shaul is dead. And of course, we think the tragedy has come to its inevitable conclusion. And it's at that moment that the men of Yavesh Gilad enter the scene in order to remove the bodies from the wall of Beit She'an, where they had been strung up in a grotesque show of humiliation. And they take those bodies down. And they bring them back to Yavesh Gilad, and they bury them. The perceptive reader will immediately understand that this represents an overwhelming closing of the circle. Remember back in chapter 11 how Shaul's career as the king of Israel had begun. There were people that were not convinced that he was the man for the job. In chapter 10, when he had been proclaimed by Shemuel as the new king of Israel. And chapter 11, as it were, was Shaul's baptism by fire. Remember what it spoke about, Nachash the Ammonite, on the eastern side of the Yarden, had attacked Yavesh Gilad and given them an ultimatum, surrender or else. And surrender meant for the king of the Ammonites, mutilation by poking out their right eyes. The people of Yavesh Gilad said, give us seven days to see if anyone among our own people, the Israelites, will intercede on our behalf and save us. And Nachash, anticipating that no one would, and that the humiliation would be even greater, gladly granted them the opportunity. But when the messengers came to Givat Shaul and Shaul returned from the field where he had been plowing the oxen, he immediately sprung into action and he gathered the troops and he rallied the troops and he marched them into battle against Nachash the Ammonite and he defeated him soundly and saved the papal of Yavesh Gilad in the process and it was an overwhelming triumph. There were no doubts after that moment that Shaul was the right man for the job. And at that point in the story, Shaul's future seems so bright and so optimistic. Effectively, what now happens, even as Shaul is dead, decapitated, impaled on the wall of Beit She'an, it will be those very people of Yavesh Gilad that will rescue his body from further hum humiliation, just as Shaul had rescued them from the clutches of Nachash the Ammonite so many years earlier. And just as Nachash the Ammonite had granted the people of Yavesh Gilad seven days 
to try their luck and find if there was an Israelite brave enough to intervene on their behalf. And of course, that person was Shaul. Now too, the people of Yavesh Gilad will fast for seven days after they have buried the bones of Shaul and effectively close the entire circle of Shaul's reign. So what began in promise and potential ended in defeat and failure. What began as the first king of Israel with all of the hopes pinned on him, what was possible for him to accomplish in the end came crashing down. But Shaul never surrendered his nobility. And in these final moments of Shmuel Aleph, we reflect upon the fact that in spite of the fact that Shaul's kingdom came to an ignominious end, the people of Yavesh Gilad, as it were, redeem his story, much as Shaul had saved them from harm at the hands of Nachash. This is a biblical theme. What we do, the choices that we make, the goodness that we bring into the world, never dissipates. It will be returned, if not sooner than later, if not to us, then to those that are close to us. That is the nature of divine providence. As the rabbis would have put it, midah keneged midah, measure for measure, that is how the world works. And so when we do an act of goodness in the world, it doesn't dissipate or vaporize, but it will produce results and consequences, not only in the immediate moment of the goodness that is done, but far into the future. In the final analysis, it is difficult to assign Shaul a grade. Who among us could judge him and the challenges that he had to face? And in our tradition, there were different opinions preserved about Shaul and his effectiveness as a leader. Some of the early rabbis were not particularly impressed with his behavior, and others recognized that Shaul had within him greatness, and that although that greatness was never fully actualized, nevertheless, the challenges that he faced, he faced as a king and as a noble human being. And perhaps that's the best possible summary of this incredibly complex figure. It is difficult to be neutral about Shaul. Shaul raises feelings of ambivalence, and there's tragedy as well. Potential that was not quite realized as fully as it could have been. As we move into the second book of Samuel, Sefer Shemuel Bet, and shift our focus to the kingship of David, we will continue to reflect upon Shaul and his reign. Even though he may be dead at this point, it is not the end of his story, as we will see. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Pardes North America 
in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.